The following is a lesson in a series on life, liberty, and property brought to you by Republic Keepers and is presented and discussed by the Attorney General of the Republic State of Texas, Chaplain Raymond. This lesson discusses a book by the same name, Life, Liberty, and Property, written by Charles A. Wiseman, of which can be purchased at his website, seek-info.com, at amazon.com, or small bookstores such as Brave New Books in Austin, Texas. The ISBN number for this book is 0-966-8921-9-4. Life, Liberty, and Property is an educational series for sovereign souls on the dry land, and the information about fundamental law and the unwritten constitution cannot be utilized by those individuals that are domiciled in the District of Columbia. To understand your domicile status, please review the two constitutions, two domiciles document on republickeepers.com. We hope you enjoy this lesson on life, liberty, and property. Okay, we're uh, getting our study material from a book written by Charles Wiseman, and we're in Chapter 6, Due Process Under the Common Law. We're starting with a section entitled, Legal Concept of Due Process. And I'd mentioned before this started that we're getting more into the aspects of becoming a lawyer here and less into the history. So, the guarantee of due process is found in written constitution has exactly the same purpose as it did in Magna Carta in declaring that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process of law. Due process of law is both a directive and a restriction placed upon the actions of government, and thus carries both a positive and a negative meaning. It prescribes what government officials are to do and what they cannot do in depriving one of life liberty, or property. The definition of due process is primarily a common law definition, which can be stated as follows. Due process of law implies and comprehends the administrations of laws equally applicable to all under-established rules which do not violate fundamental principles of private rights and in a competent tribunal possessing jurisdiction of the cause and proceeding upon justice. It is founded upon the basic principle that every man shall have his day in court and the benefit of the general law which proceeds only upon notice and which hears and considers before judgment is rendered. Let me just comment about this just a little. It's saying that you, it must be heard and be considered, evaluated, comprehended, weighed, me measured, and uh, shared with one another and understood before judgment is rendered. The Due Process Clauses are the most important clauses in our written constitutions. 
Due process of law applies to social control, to administrative process, to procedure, to jurisdiction, and to substantive law. It applies to the police power, to eminent domain, and to taxation. It applies to every interest which an individual may assert, whether it be a right, power, privilege, or immunity, whether civil or political. In short, due process protects the very substance of individual rights to life, liberty, and property. Because of corruption in government, due process has had its definition and scope narrowed to mean just judicial proceedings. It is but logical that a corrupt government would desire to limit and restrict what due process truly means, since, quote, the provision is designed to exclude oppression and arbitrary power from every branch of government, unquote. The general definition of due process is, quote, the exercise of the powers of government as the settled maxims of the law permit and sanction, unquote. But corrupt and self-willed persons in government don't want to be restricted and tied down by such old settled maxims and therefore they devise new ones, which are more lenient and convenient for them. This is what we see today, a significant departure from due process and the law of the land, thus the need for this type of book. Generally, life, liberty, and property cannot be deprived until there is a judicial trial. In this sense, Due process ordinarily implies and includes a complaint, a writ or summons, a defendant, a judge, regular allegations, opportunity to answer, and a trial according to the settled course of judicial proceedings. To this, there are only a few exceptions, such as the arrest of a known felon without warrant or judicial process. But these exceptions are also governed under due process and must be performed in a certain way. Thus, due process of law is not confined to judicial proceedings, but governs every aspect of government activity. The essential elements, then, of due process of law are notice, an opportunity to be heard, the right to defend in an orderly proceeding. To dispense with notice before taking a property is likened to obtaining a judgment without the defendant having ever been summoned. The terms, quote, law of the land, unquote, and, quote, due process of law, Unquote, are used interchangeably in regards to the protection of rights and the restriction on government acts. 
But while the term law of the land includes due process, it embraces the much broader concept of the general fundamental laws in the land. The next section is due process interpretation by the common law. When the Magna Carta was written, it was written with the spirit and intent of preserving the ancient or old laws, as Cook stated, which had previously existed and been practiced in the land. Thus, this document was founded on the common law. It is this document which embodied the spirit of our constitutional government and the foundation of our political liberty. The provision of due process of law, whether it is written in a constitution or not, is founded on the common law and must be construed in that light. To arrive at what is or is not due process of law, we are not to look at and adopt modern policies, rules, beliefs, or procedures. To answer the question of whether an act is due process, we must first examine the Constitution itself to see whether the process be in conflict with any of its provisions. If not found to be so, then we must look to those settled usages and modes of proceeding if existing in the common and statute law of England before the emigration of our ancestors, and which are shown not to have been unsuited to their civil and political condition by having been acted on by them after the settlement of this country. If the act of process under question doesn't meet this test, then we can look to current practices as an answer to what is to be due process but it is rather rare to have a case that cannot be guided by ancient law and precepts and by settled processes. The question then of what constitutes the law of the land or due process of law is often largely a question of history. As the Supreme Court of Minnesota stated, what is due process of law is usually a traditional or historical question. Was it due process of law under the common law? And did it remain such up to the time of adopting the Constitution? Due process is a common law concept and therefore must be interpreted by common law terms and enforced by common law procedures. In determining then what acts, procedures, or powers a government can or cannot use when depriving a citizen of inherent rights and property, the answer is to look back at Anglo-Saxon history and see what our ancestors had established, allowed, or prohibited in the past. These acts, procedures, maxims, and acknowledged rights which were passed out and practiced from time immemorial, is the common law to our race, the white race. It is by this common law that government must, as a matter of law, be regulated, restricted, and 
limited. The act of depriving one of life, liberty, or property must be one that is known at common law to be due process of law. In other words, due process means such an exercise of power which the settled maxims of law permit and sanction, and under such safeguards as these maxims prescribe for the class of cases to which the one in question belongs. This common law procedure is thus the law of the land. It is clear that the common law is the foundation of that which is designated as due process of law. When first adopted in Magna Carta, the phrase law of the land had reference to the common and statute law then existing in England. And when embodied in constitutions in this country, it referred to the same common law as previously modified by the colonists and as far as suited to their wants and conditions. In determining whether the, determining whether the legislature could restrict certain creditors in their ancient common law right to collect their debts by process of execution, thus forbidding them the authority to reclaim their property, the Supreme Court of Indiana held the act void as depriving the creditors of property rights without due process of law. When you get the books, you need to read that closely and understand them. The rights of the creditor to have liens issued where money is due them, quote, find their justification in their ancient character and in usage, unquote. And while the legislator might alter the common law with reference to some administrative and remedial process, no such power exists to deny to creditors the ancient common law right to collect their debts by process of execution. The court further stated, in determining what constitutes due process of law and equality before the law, proper consideration must be given to the ancient landmarks which were established for the protection of private rights. Not only is due process of law to be determined, be determined by what it meant in common law, but all constitutional provisions and mandates are to be interpreted in like manner. This has always been a well-established rule in America, as stated by the Supreme Court of Mississippi. It is a familiar learning that the constitutional provisions are to be interpreted in the light of the common law, as it existed at the time of the revolution, and the rights intended to be secured were the rights of Englishmen as they existed at the common law as understood at that time. Thus, liberty and property rights are to be so regarded as they existed at common law and are to be protected as they were by due process of law under the common law. This means these rights can only be deprived by procedures and processes 
recognized at common law. It was the intent of written constitutions to secure rights by the phrases law of the land and due process of law. This was revealed in the case of Ex parte Grossman, where the U.S. Supreme Court, in construing the powers of the President to pardon, stated, the language of the Constitution cannot be interpreted safely except by reference to the common law and to British institutions as they were when the instrument was framed and adopted. The statements and lawyers of the convention were familiar with other forms of government, but when they came to put their conclusions into the form of fundamental law in a compact draft, they expressed them in terms of the common law, confident that they could be shortly and easily understood. The concept that every free white person is protected in life, liberty, and property until the same be forfeited in a due course of law was recognized by the Supreme Court of South Carolina in 1844. It said, that the administration of any due course action must be caused by the law of the land, it then described what this law meant, means. What it meant by law of the land, excuse me, forgive me, starting over on this uh, statement again, what is meant by the law of the land, there can be no hesitation in saying that these words mean the common law, and the statute law existing in this state at the adoption of our Constitution. The law that originally prevailed in the land is that which constitutes the body of law that makes up our unwritten Constitution and which guides the written Constitutions. Thus, it is said that the due process provisions in our written Constitutions are but a reaffirmation of a common law principle. The Supreme Court of Alabama, in construing the meaning of the terms reasonable and due process as used in the state constitution, said that they must be determined by what they meant at the common law. And when the constitution was adopted, all the authorities, state and federal, hold that these provisions of the Constitution and the whole Bill of Rights are declaratory of the common law. The fundamental principles, rights, and judicial processes which are covered under the law of the land are those which existed and were practiced in the courts of England and the American colonies. This body of laws formed our common law and the common law is the foundation of that which is designated as due process of law. It has also been held that judicial trials are to proceed according to the course, mode, and usages of the common law. In explaining the division of powers between the states and the national government, the U.S. Supreme Court in the landmark case of South Carolina v. United States held, the Constitution is a written instrument, 
As such, its meaning does not alter. That which is meant when adopted, it means now. One other fact must be borne in mind, and that is in interpreting the Constitution, we must have recourse to the common law. As said by Mr. Justice Matthews in Smith v. Alabama, uh, the case number is there. The interpretation of the Constitution of the United States is necessarily influenced by the fact that its provisions are framed in the language of the English common law and are to be read in the light of its history. And that is by Mr. Justice Gray in the United States v. Wong Kim Ark. Another quote. In this, as in other respects, it, the Constitution, must be interpreted in the light of the common law, the principle and history of which were familiarly known to the framers of the Constitution, Minor versus Happerstein, and Ex parte Wilson, and Boyd v. United States. Another one, the language of the Constitution, as has been well said, could not be understood without preference to the common law. The meaning of the due process of law in American Constitution has the same meaning that it did under the common law, and as the early Americans interpreted it up to the time of the Revolution. As the prevailing law, the common law is the guide and basis of private rights secured by constitutions, as the Supreme Court of Maine said, in Maine, our conceptions of personal and property rights are based upon the common law. Since written constitutions are based upon the common law, all noted authorities recognize that its powers and provisions are to be interpreted by the common law. The maxims of Magna Carta and the common law are the interpreters of constitutional grants of power. And those acts which by those maxims the several departments of the government are forbidden to do cannot be considered with any grant or apportionment of power which the people in general terms have made to these departments. Whatever rules, statutes, or policies that are devised by governments which work an infringement or de deprivation of fundamental private rights, they must conform to the common law or else they are not due process of law. Let me write, read that again. Whatever rules, statutes, or policies that are devised by governments which work an infringement or deprivation of fundamental private rights, they must conform to the common law or else they are not due process of law. And is this where we begin tomorrow, Chuck? Yes, sir. All right, let's, un, uh, you going to unmute them? You, can you unmute them or do I have to? No, you have to go through that process. Should it just be one but button at the bottom of that list?
unmute. I've all. got mute. I got mute. You mean if I click it? Let me see here. Muted. It does only one thing. It mutes. It's designed for people to raise their hand, and I unmute them when they want to ask their question. Okay. Okay, everybody's unmuted. Any questions on the material presented today? Hello, Chaplain. This is Russell Overton. Yes, I have sir. a question in regards to page 70 and page 72 when they make specific reference to white persons. Oh, I knew that was bound to happen. <laughs> Uh, it gets caught up in the word race. The gentleman uh, writing this, it comes from the uh, Israelites. And the word race in the Bible meant family. It didn't mean, um, when they talked about the, the family of Abraham, and I don't know where the word race got white got associated with it, but uh, it's it's the most difficult thing to unravel, and you can see why we still have so much trouble with it. But because of the events in the 1860s, that was resolved. People are no longer allowed to be property, or shouldn't be. And uh, it's almost, uh, well, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail here with regard to our de facto, but I have difficulty being able to explain it. Just trust that we changed our ways because we apply common law to the black man, the brown man, all of them in our in our de jure government, we do not dis we don't distinguish or separate. I don't know what they do in those others or try to explain in those others, but in ours, all men are granted these privileges, especially if they're sovereign souls on the dry land, and that's why that's our preferred world: sovereign souls on the dry land. Every time you see white race. Substitute sovereign souls on the dry land. Is there anybody that does not know why we use the word sovereign soul instead of just the word sovereign? Good. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Are you going to elaborate on that? On what? Sovereign soul rather than just sovereign. Then there is somebody that needs me to explain it? Well, I think I know, but I would like to hear. I, I could use the review also. All right. We have in the world today a different kind of corporation that is using events real events or perceived events to 
uh, exercise um, and change definitions. In the de facto corporation, by way of the uh, Homeland Security, they're making every attempt to make the word sovereign a very bad word. In fact, we just found, heard something the other day from somebody here in Texas, no less, that says if you're ever arguing with a sovereign, be very careful because they're likely to take out a gun and shoot you. They want the word sovereign to be thought of as a very bad word when applied to people. And the reason they do is they want the government to be the sovereign. And that replaces the people on the dry land. Now we have people on the dry land who are really the sovereigns in our system and were in 1786 or 83. So we needed to do something that... that uh, shielded us from using a word that they were, that was being uh, equivocated. The meaning of it was being changed before our very eyes. So they could use it in another way to make the government the boss over all people. So that people were all subjects of the government. Well, what we knew from some experiences was the corporation cannot talk or deal with anything that is alive, meaning real people. They can only deal with pieces of paper, uh, unrecorded single-member corporations, which somebody call some people call straw men, but they can deal with the corporation because it's dead. Well, what, excuse me, what we had then is in that system we discovered there are times when that system which, which cannot deal with live people uh, directly had to figure out a way to handle it. Well, how did they do it? If you look at the manifest handed from the airplane to the people on the ground or the boat to people on the ground as they embark and go on their way, there is one a line on the manifest which says, souls on board. Real people, live beings on board. So we've adopted using the phrase in the context of their use of the word souls on board on those manifests, the use of the phrase sovereign soul, so that we can be identified as really living, real living being people and not a corporation trying to become a sovereign. So we are sovereign souls on the dry land. Now, I don't know if the other states have adopted this yet, but this really is more of a jural society thing than a state. It's, it's the jural society identifying their own. Does that help? So, soul just 
essentially indicates a living being. Because they use it when they're talking about living beings. They meaning the de facto? Yes. Okay. Got it. Would it be redundant then to say a living soul on dry on the dry land? No. Living is uh, a state that you're in whether you have sovereignty or not. Okay. This is the, if you know not the word, you know, know not the art sort of thing. Sovereign soul puts us in the right bucket. We're sovereign and we're living. That's irregardless of the, the being a secured party creditor or anything? That's what? Is that uh, regardless of whether or not you've gone through the process of a uh, secured party creditor? Who's speaking? This is Russell. Russell, and you're in New York? That's correct. Um, we uh, here in Texas... Um, we we went through a good bit of this sort of thing having to do with uh, secured party credit. But now, I'm going to get very technical on you, and just remember this. The documents you have signed effectively are consistent with the declarations made by grand juries in March of 2010, which imply or no state that there were uh, contracts entered into with sovereign souls that took their equity interest into the control of the de facto corporation without full disclosure, which makes that contract fraudulent. So you must do something based on that that secures your position. So we had a diagram of this somewhere, didn't we, Chuck? But uh, you must, on the day you sign that, you must do something to secure that sovereign souls on the land position because you're taking advantage of the fact that the contract was fraudulent to be able to exercise the remedy that's available at HEAR 192. Now, there's a thing in the common law called latches, which says, now that you know that, do something to get your judgment to preserve it, or after time goes by, it means you accept it the way it is, and you lose the opportunity to secure it. I understand that the length of time associated with that is either two years or three years. So far, we have not confirmed which. But luckily for all of us, we're still well within the two-year limit. 
So anyone who just signs the normal sovereignty uh, documents, the Declaration of Sovereign Rights, and the Declaration of Juro and those things, have two to three years to provide the necessary properly convinced, properly commenced. Uh, what is the word, Chuck? A judicial process? Uh, it's on our webpage on one of our, our uh, on our two constitution, two domicile diagram page. Yeah, and there has right to now. be a properly convinced process. When you do that, because it, the contracts were fraudulent, you'll get a default judgment, and then that default judgment can be used to protect you from that point on. Adjudicative. Without it, latches may expire, and you will be right back where you were. Uh, it's technical. Does that help you? It does. Right now, you're fine. One of the alternatives of doing that um, properly commenced procedure is secured party creditor. Another one is a revocation of all powers of attorney. And I understand there's some others out there. But that would all end up with essentially a default judgment. The secured party creditor leaves your equity interest in a place where the treasury of the United States becomes your fiduciary and the surety and is uh, required because of that uh, HCR 192 remedy to pay all your uh, to discharge not pay discharge your debts really down deep in the details but good point But I think we're, are we drifting off of the subject matter of this, uh, this lesson? It's due process of law, remember? Yeah, we're drifting way off. But it's, it's not an easy thing. Well, I'm going to read this last paragraph again and then we'll go off the recording. Whatever rule statutes or policies that are devised by governments which work in infringement or deprivation of fundamental private rights, they must conform to the common law or else they are not due process of law. Shades of Obamacare. You want to stop the recording, Chuck? Okay.